Well, Seth is out lawyering as he does from time to time. So this time I am sitting at the table with Katie Carl. Katie is a poet, a writer, a editor of Dappled Things, and a student at the University of St. Thomas. What am I missing, Katie? What else are you? <laughs> I'm a fiction writer. I'm actually only sometimes a poet, only occasionally. <laughs> gotcha. Um, uh, when I when I can't help it, and I finished my degree. I just uh, a couple months ago oh, uh, finished. Congrats, my UST master. So yeah, thank you. Thanks. Uh, it's been a real joy, and that's the program that you're in right now, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So you are no longer a student, I guess. You are someone who has run through the gauntlet and finished it and lived to tell on the other side. Awesome. How long did it take you out of curiosity? I did the full time. So I did two years. Oh, I didn't know that. Two years. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you're local to Houston, right? Where UST is? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, We're we're just outside the Houston proper metro area, but um, we're in the larger metro area, if that makes sense. Houston's very small. It does. Houston is huge. Yeah, land-wise. Are you enjoying this cold front that we're having? (laughs) It is beautiful. You know, I was sitting outside, right? It's like in the 70s in the mornings. Um, That does feel like a cold front by comparison with what we've been having. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm kind of doing cold front with the sort of air quotes because – anyone listening. Today's high, I think, here in Georgetown (laughs) is 89. So that is a cold front for us because it's not 105. And I'll take it gladly. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Okay. So you were correct. You're more of a fiction writer than a poet. I'm not quite sure where my brain went with that other than maybe the dappled things thing, because you guys feature a lot of poetry that my brain went to, oh, you are also a poet. Uh, But you are mostly a fiction writer because I'm also looking at your short story collection that you recently wrote, right? Right. That's out with Wise Blood Books. And it's funny, I did actually start out uh, in college writing poetry and thinking that that would be what I would pursue. Um, and uh-huh. I'm still very attentive to the individual words in the line as I as I go. Um, the language is yeah. important to me still. So, yeah. Gotcha. And yeah, you're right. Double Things is publishing a lot of poetry. Um, it, fiction, nonfiction, book reviews, um, and visual art. We've got a whole panoply of things going on. Yeah, it looks very much up the alley of listeners of A Drink with Friend because we talk about a lot. I mean, basically the broad topic here is all things sacramental. Like what can we see when mm-hmm. we lift up the thing and see the thing beneath the thing? And to me, that's mm-hmm. very much what Dappled Things is about, you know, infusing beauty Absolutely. where we desperately need it in our postmodern culture. And so I kind of wanted to chat with you about that because that seems to be a topic that you revisit again and again with your writing and with your editing and just with the things you put out in the world. Uh, you are very much a normal person just in the thick of things, right? I mean, you live in Houston, which to me embodies the idea of like living in the thick of things with the traffic and the sprawl <laughs> and, and the modern yeah. whatever. And you've got kids. So – I guess I just want to ask you broadly, like, how do you infuse that more of a sacramental posture to life in your normal everydayness? It's a it's a lovely question, and I <laughs> I wish I had a good, easy, ready answer for it. But it seems to me that you know, so much of contemporary life is just forcing us to hurry, right? It's forcing us to move at kind of a machine pace and inhuman pace. Um, I am a big advocate of slowing down uh, and doing things at a more human rate. Um, 
And playing a long game, I I also pick up quite often on this feeling that I think I, I was maybe um, given growing up, not intentionally or consciously, but it sort of crept into the water I was drinking, the air I was breathing, that you have to have your plan and you have to have your direction and you have to have control over exactly what's going to happen, right? And life just isn't like that. We don't get to have total control. Um, and whenever we feel like we do, we're often self-deceived, right? We're often going down some path that's not um, actually going to be to our benefit, to our flourishing in the long run, right? Um so that's not to say that you can't ever try to control anything or you know make plans, but um, trying to hold things lightly uh, has been kind of transformative for me. A shift from you know thinking that I have the plan all mapped out and I know exactly what's going to happen to being open to surprise, uh, being open mm. to what might come about. Right? Um, I don't know if that gets it. What you're asking. Um, yeah. And we haven't really covered the sacramental dimension yet, but I think I'm describing like that attitude of active receptivity that you have to start with before you can even come to or receive, right? What, what's there for you in a, you know, in a literal, you know, big S sacrament way or in a small S you know, open to creation kind of way. Yeah. It's interesting what you just said about being open to surprise. I did, I did not even think of this until you said that, that whenever I lead pilgrimages, which I do in the summer, mm-hmm. and I just led one to Ireland, I like to start off early on inviting our participants to ask God to surprise you on you know mm-hmm. this week-long journey that we are on or however long. And I haven't really thought of asking God to do the same <laughs> in my normal life. And so you even saying <laughs> that is a very interesting idea to me. For someone just like listening in on our chat here, who's pulled up a chair at the table, she's got, you know, three kids and needs to run to Costco today. What does that mean in our normal life? Like, what does it mean to be looking or to have the the eyesight required for maybe having a sacramental posture, in your opinion? I think a few things. So I think we're looking for things where we're not expecting to see them. Right, including in difficulty and struggle and things that seem not to be adding up or not to be as they should be. Right, um, these are the things that we're most tempted to be frustrated by, um, and, and I, I don't even want to use the word tempted because sometimes it's just you know, there's nothing wrong with feeling frustrated about something that's frustrating. Right, it's just it, that's what it is. Um, it, you know, but it, a temperament like mine, I tend to kind of rage against that and go, oh, you know, it shouldn't be this way. This isn't right. You know, we're, we really should have things some other completely different way um, where, I don't know, the challenge for me is to see that but I, I might be right about that. Like it might, sh- it might should be some other way, but this is the way it is right now. And we're not going to get to anything better um, if we don't start by trying to, to make the small shifts. Right. Um, Oh, what was I, what was I just reading? This was on a, um, a psychology, a Catholic psychology website that I've been, I've been enjoying their podcast recently. Um, and someone, it, it was an article by the psychologist, but 
it, no, 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 no. I'm I'm mixing this up entirely. This was actually <laughs> LA Review of Books. <laughs> so, the, I still want to know what that podcast like, is, headspace. though. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. We'll get back to that. This, but okay. this is the headspace I'm in. I'm like crossing these two worlds constantly, right? So I'm, I'm reading uh-huh. The Catholic Psychologist, and then I'm reading LA Review of Books. So this was in an LA Review of Books article this morning, and it was an interview with a poet. Um, and the poet was saying that her writing teacher had once said, um, and I wish I could remember her name. Um, she was saying that the writing teacher said, um, you know, outer work without inner work, um, it, you, you won't ever get change without inner work, but without, um, it, you know, without outer change, like the inner work isn't going to mean anything either. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so there are these two poles that we kind of have to always be pulling between. Right. So I'm in, so I'm in Costco and I'm, you know, frustrated about, <laughs> um, I, I don't know. What am I often frustrated about in Costco? I'm not because my, my husband goes to Costco. I can't deal with Costco. Insert <laughs> insert um, daily grind task of choice. How about that? Whatever that looks sure. like. Sure. <laughs> right. Okay. So, um, you know, I'm standing in the, the back of the house folding the laundry and I'm frustrated because I have to stand here doing this. But I mean, you're not going to get around like the human problem of needing clothes, right? Um, right. Right. But it's not like that's the only way that we could possibly ever deal with that. Like I could pull a kid in and say, hey, I could use a hand with this, right? Would you mind pitching in? Um, But it seems in the moment, if I'm yielding to that frustration of felt injustice, like, oh, I shouldn't even have to deal with this, right? Somebody else should be dealing with this. Um, It's actually going to be paradoxically impossible for me to even make the small shift that would make it a little bit more bearable, right? Um, mm. I'm not clear on the point I'm even making. For no, me. I'm actually picking up um, what you're laying down. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but, you, you know, it's it, it's a question of uh, that dynamic, right, between the inner and the outer worlds, right? If I want to have an influence on anything around me, like first I have to get my own interior house mm-hmm. under control um, mm-hmm. and not under total total control, right, but in some kind of order, right? You know, and only once I've done that, you know, once I've overcome this, whatever this interior resistance is to making the change I need mm-hmm. to make, um, which might be as simple as asking for help, um, then I can move more toward, um, you know, something that's yeah. going to be a little bit better for everybody. Right. Yeah. It reminds me of something and one of my writing accountability partners said to me literally less yesterday, or she didn't say to me, she's passed along a quote from Madeline Langle who who wrote mm-hmm. that inspiration comes during the work, not before it. And yeah. it makes me think, I mean, cause I want to get to asking you about your writing life as well, but how we connect sometimes like someone listening right now, you can hear this and all, oh, yes, it's all well and good. I need to actually have my inner life in order in order to have the right perspective of folding laundry. But a lot of times, at least maybe this is me talking, I tend to want to wait until I have the right perspective and then do it or to mm-hmm. spend my time reading a book or um, contemplating on a long walk mm-hmm. instead of the reality of life, which is, you know, I need to do X, Y, and Z today. I don't have time for a three hour walk in the woods. Um, so I guess I just won't at all. And I'll just like endure my daily grind, gritting my teeth and just wait for that time, you know, whether it's vacation or that, that idealistic cabin in the woods that will never actually happen. So there's something to be said about the idea of doing it and looking for the sacramental while doing the thing, you know, not waiting until you have 
your mind exactly where it should be. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, no, totally. A- absolutely. And to pick up on a thread and what you were saying too, um, there's this tendency that we have, I think, right, to to sort of project out into the future and say like, oh, it's going to be better later. It's going to be, there's going to be this time where I have this, this sense of expansiveness um, later, right? And I, I don't know, a big shift for me too has been realizing that there, that later might not be ever coming, Right what what we have is right now right so if yeah. i can't try to find it right now in the laundry or in the you know the trip to costco or the trip to the library or what have you um you know, there might not be another opportunity right so and this i think tracks into the things that i was excited to to discuss with you about rule of life right mm. because there's so much peace right and kind of knowing what you're going to do in a more regular way, right? Yeah. And and not having to constantly always make that fresh decision of like, oh, well, you know, should I do this or should I do that? You've kind of laid out your roadmap and you know what's supposed to happen at this time and what's supposed to happen at that time, right? Um, yeah. 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 I think a rule of life. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, oh no, no, no. I was just going to say, like, even if you have to kind of readjust it day by day, Right. Right. At least to have that sense of what's going to happen in the next 24 hours. It's actually something that I learned from my mother-in-law um, mm. to to not always expect every day to look exactly like the last one, but to know what's going to happen roughly <laughs> for the next 24 to 48 hours. Right. Mm. And then kind of be able to plan out from there. Right. And you might have seasons where you can have that regularity, you know, of, you know, every, every day is going to look kind of like the last. Um, but I don't know, when I had really young babies, it felt like no day, no two days were alike. Right. And, and that, that was a season of frustration, I want to say, mm-hmm. um, because of that yeah. unpredictability, but she, she kind of showed me how you can roll with unpredictability. That kind of, to me, connects the dots with what you were saying at the very beginning about being surprised, you know, like mm-hmm. having this posture of um, asking God to surprise you can connect you to something like a rule where you've ironed out or you've put in writing the idea of the big pictures or the things that you know are the essential way you want to pursue virtue. Um, a- an easy, concrete way I tend to tell people because we understand what this means is a lot of times we want to be a type of person who has people over for dinner, but we often Mm -hmm. are not putting that into practice, right? We want to be a household that has company, but yet we tend to be people who feel like we can't because there's laundry, you know, sitting on the dining table or we did not menu plan or whatever it is, you know, but this is just an easy example that if we do those small things with great love, like do the laundry, even if it's in an imperfect way, or especially if it's an imperfect way, perhaps, because we actually want to be a house where people come to an imperfect home and feel at home. Then we can be people who have spontaneous, you know, guests over for dinner or or even like a friend over for a cup of coffee for 30 minutes. So I'm trying to keep this more accessible. That um, it's just striking that balance, you know, between um, knowing what we're about, but also being willing to completely be in the moment. Yeah, no, but to pen that um, back to the idea of a creative practice and, and of this looking for this expansiveness in whatever your circumstances are. Um, I, I think 
it, there's there's a feeling that we sometimes have that I can't do it until the stage where everything is perfectly stable and everything is perfectly predictable. And that's I, I think that's exactly backwards. Um, I was just I just wrote about this for Ecstasy's magazine actually. Um, it, th- this idea that. This idea of the art monster, this Mm. sort of cultural myth that we need to have, you know, total exclusive focus on the creative pursuit in order to do the creative pursuit or, um, you know, to bring it back to the house analogy, right? Total focus on the act of hospitality, right? You know, have everything out of the way and everything totally finished so that I can completely focus on this, this dinner party. Um, You know, if you kind of wait for that, um, if you wait for that clear deck, you're never going to do the thing that you really want to do. So it's a question of putting the um, you know, putting the first things first um, in that sense and letting everything else fall into place around it. Yeah. yeah. Because if you know that something is, yeah, what you're called to do, then yeah. you'll do it. Right. Which actually makes me wonder if that's the posture you forced yourself to take or maybe you invited yourself to take in getting your MFA because you have a normal life. You are not, I mean, you're married with kids and it's very easy to say, you know, MFA degree, that's for empty nest season or that's before marriage season, but not in the midst of it. Is that something you wrestled with or was that, I don't know, easy for you? Yeah, you know, um, the the degree before um, didn't happen for me. Um, I kind of had the attitude that I was going to have a family first and then kind of deal with the, you know, the, the typical track of like the empty nest degree. I was, mm-hmm. that was absolutely 100% the plan, you know, get all the kids out of the house and into college and then go back and get my advanced degree. But when the opportunity arose, again, this moment of surprise, right? I did not move to Houston expecting that this MFA program would be founded. It wasn't even an idea um, in 2019 when we when we came here. Um, it was entirely for my husband's job. Um, you know, there, there was sort of no thought of that being a possibility even on the horizon. But I had this kind of tickling sense in the back of my mind, like there is something vocational for me as well as for him going on here, but I don't know what it is, right? And this is very mysterious to me at the time I'm talking about when we're making the decision to move like early 2019, Mm -hmm. you know, in the spring. Um, I'm thinking, you know, what could this possibly be? Because it feels like I'm being called out to the desert. Like I, you know, I love my community where we are. I love the, the house that we're in. I love the sort of life pattern and rhythm that we have set up right now. It, it seems crazy to leave this behind. Why would I ever leave this behind? Right? Um, it, not knowing that if we hadn't been here in Houston, um, it, there's very likely no way um, because we're close to extended family. So my mother-in-law could help out with the kids while I was doing my classes. Um, sure you know, which would have been impossible had we been, you know, as, as lovely as the community there was, um, you know, I feel they're, they're kind of things you can ask family to help out with maybe sometimes that it's, you know, it, it's more of a dance to ask for the same kinds of help from a friend, even a close friend. Um, and mm-hmm. it, it felt like it would have been too much. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but at the, you know, at the time, um, you know, it, it just seemed like this was obviously providential and there's, you know, if I hadn't been willing to take that leap where it seemed crazy, um, it, then, then none of that, you know, 
the, the things that have happened in the last four years, which include publishing three books and getting a master's degree could have happened. So, yeah. Right. 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 You publishing three books. That actually is where I wanted to go. Your, your latest book. Is, I, is it still, cause I have the arc here, fragile objects, which is your collection of short stories. Is this out for the public? It is out for the public. It's available on Wiseblood Books site. Okay. Uh, so if you go so, to wisebloodbooks.com. Yeah. And we'll put the link to all this in the show notes of this episode. So um, I am curious as to your, um, I don't know, not your muse, but just more like what, what prompted you to write a collection of short stories. You know, I fell in love with the short story form in high school. I knew from late high school that I was going to be a writer. Um, and I didn't know exactly what form that would take or what that would look like. In college, I took journalism classes. You know, I thought, tried to think very practically about, you know, ways that you could keep the lights on with writing work. And there aren't that many of them, as, no. I, don't have to, <laughs> as I don't have to explain. Um, right. So, I, you know, I went into editing and I learned kind of style guides and the editorial process. Mm-hmm. But, uh, it, you know, it... I kept coming back and coming back to this idea of doing literary writing. And I was so in love with the form of the short story from very early on, um, reading, you know, Flannery O'Connor, of course, reading, um, Fitzgerald was big for me at the time. Um, I kind of see now looking back how there's, you know, a lot of limitation actually in his short stories, but, uh, you know, it, at the time, that was sort of the, the example. And then, um, it, you know, discovering more contemporary writers and discovering all the kinds of directions you can take the form was so exciting for me um, mm-hmm. that I kind of always just held on to this desire to do it. And I, you know, would play with these drafts and put them away and play with them and put them away. Um, and yeah, no, it, it's so it's kind of a, you know, a dream come true to get to have a collection like this out and to have, um, you know, to be able to share these often quirky, sometimes dark. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I hope ultimately hopeful stories with, uh, mm. with others. I agree with you. I absolutely love the short form of a short story, both as a writer and as a reader. I did not think I would I, I don't know. I, for whatever reason, I used to think that short stories were um, either too highbrow or just too, maybe even too lowbrow. Like not for me, mm. I want to get lost in a big, thick novel. And there are times and places for that. But I, as a reader, truly enjoy a short story collection because uh, not only do you get that full, you know, full plot diagram uh, from beginning to end in one, you know, quote chapter, but Practically speaking, sometimes it's a really nice treat to be able to read a full story from start to finish in one sitting or one moment before you fall asleep. To me, there's there are definite seasons when short stories are where it's at as a reader. Um, as a writer, it's funny you say this because I thought of Flannery O'Connor when I was reading some of your short stories uh, with kind of the dark element, especially the yeah. one, you know, from which your collection takes its name, Fragile Objects. I am curious why you named the entire collection the same name as that particular short story. Is there a common thread to to pull between all of them? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so all of these characters are in some way or another dealing with the issue of human fragility and human imperfection, human lack. Like in some way or another, they're all up against the fact that, you know, it, there's a sense in which, right, psychologically we want to say we're enough and that's true in its level, right? And then there's another sense in which we're kind of faced with life and by ourselves, we're, we're never going to totally fulfill everything, right, that life could ever ask. Um, there's always going to be some kind of shortfall and we're always going to be, right, um, spiritually and often enough practically as well in some kind of need um, or in some kind of position of dependence, right? So these characters are all facing that and some to greater degree than others um, are, you know, and, and in some cases I'm thinking of, right, the characters are showing actually a great deal of resiliency, right, which would mm-hmm. be the opposite pole from fragility, right? Um, but then maybe there's somebody else in their life who's very fragile, who then they have to think about how do I not, you know, how do I come along in my life without leaving this person behind, right? So, um, you know, and then there are others who just sort of shatter under the pressure uh, that's being placed on them, right? So I, I was interested in exploring that polarity, um, if that makes sense. Those two mm-hmm. kinds of, you know, it, it, and it's not like there are only two, but this this sort of range of possible responses to life. Um, and the other co- the other title that I could have given the collection um, is actually Hail the Festival, uh, which is another story in the collection that uh, sort of centers on a, a similar, and I think in some ways related question that the, the stories are all asking, which is how do I look at this this panoply of everything that we're offered in life, right? This, mm. you know, and I think this links back to your question about the sacramental worldview too. You know, how do I look at this, this complex tangle of everything that's good and bad and, you know, maybe indifferent to me totally, right? But, um, you know, just is what it is in itself and kind of is asking to be met on that ground and not, mm. you know, on the ground of, my response to it necessarily, right? Um, you know, how do, how do I look at everything and take in everything and you know, somehow affirm the goodness of all creation, even when I clearly see that there are also real problems and real imperfections and real mm. situations that need to be addressed? Yeah, yeah. When I think of sacramental, I sometimes picture, you know, because when we talk about lifting up the layer to see the thing beneath the thing, I picture an onion where there's, you know, layer and then layer and then layer. And then sometimes, you know, it takes a while to get to really the meat of a thing that ultimately the thing beneath the thing is actually realer than the thing Mm. on top, you know, kind of this idea we see a veil where we see through a mirror dimly and um, that the nature of things but underneath that layer is actually more real than what we're just looking at. And I think that's ultimately the beauty of, of being intentional about taking the sacramental posture is um, actually being more in tuned with reality, not pushing away reality as though the real world is hard. Seeking beauty is only for those who don't have hard things to deal with. So it's, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, there's this sort of, I, I worry actually about this, this perception that, you know, beauty is sort of this thing that you get to chase as a 
privilege rather than something that everyone can encounter as just something that's woven into the fabric of reality. Um, and, and yeah, it might be that they're incredibly difficult and even better circumstances that have to be faced. And it's, um, but I've been impressed by, this is an area where I've been impressed by others who, you know, are facing things that I can only begin to imagine and yet are able to see um, in and through those uh, precisely in and through those um, beauty in in reality itself. Yeah. And, you know, I know you and I briefly discussed this before the idea of the telos of things like poetry or the telos of even just the written word, you know, so when we're talking about having just an ordinary life and yet you have this collection of short stories on your nightstand that you get to drink from a little bit every night. To me, it's not, you know, beauty is not actually just a nice extra thing for all of us to pursue. It's actually required for us to be more fully human. And so I'm curious what you think, you know, when I say telos, uh, instead of, mm-hmm. you know, trying to be fancy and highbrow, that just means like the, a thing's purpose. Like what is its core like reason for existing. And so the telos of something written, you know, be it a story or a poem or what have you, what do you think its purpose is in our just normal people lives? I mean, when I think about the kind of regular structure of the normal person's day, right, you get up and very often you're hitting the ground running, like you have a million things you have to accomplish. Um, you're only going to accomplish a fraction of those and you're constantly going to be feeling like you're running behind, um, you know, behind the curve. It, it's never going to feel like enough, um, or at least maybe that's just me, but there, there's something about the way that a, a piece of art, whether it's music or literature or a poem or what have you, can break into that um, and open up this kind of space or expansiveness um, that we were alluding to earlier, and, and give you it bring you into a different kind of time or a different relationship with time. Um, where you are capable of being present to each thing that is happening um, as if it were the only thing that mattered, um, which we know it's not, um, yeah. you know, and, and we're able to keep, you know, a different perspective. But yeah, I, I think arts and um, beautiful things um, in creation, whether natural or, you know, made by human beings are often, you know, bringing us or calling us right into this kind of relationship with time where we see, you know, that our, our accomplishment is not all that is important, that that there are things that are important beyond all, right. Um, To kind of invert, right. Or flip the line from Marianne Moore Um, poetry. I don't know if you know this poem, um, Marianne Moore's poetry. She says, you know, I too dislike it. There are things that are important beyond all this fiddle. And she means poetry, right. She's saying that poems Mm -hmm. are, you know, are are not of importance to the average person, which is a very common perception today. Um, You know, but then she leads you through the poem to see, um, you know, that if you're interested in having contact with reality or having a relationship to reality that goes beyond just, you know, your endless treadmill, your your to-do list, your, you know, feeling of constant labor and constant um, under the gun, 
if you want to get out of all that, then yeah, you're interested in poetry. <laughs> um, yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. I um, have said before on the pod and just in my real life that whenever you feel too busy or stressed or like life is just swallowing you whole, that you need to stop and read mm-hmm. a poem, a good poem, but yeah. you need to stop and read yeah. poems. That is actually a great prescription for mm-hmm. exactly what you're describing, not only for infusing beauty into your life because you need it, but because it reminds you of the telos of um, being human and of why we're here on earth. And it, it's sort of this, both a shot in the arm and a reset button of um, remembering, remembering truth, you know, but remembering mm-hmm the goodness of, of why we're here. And to me, this dovetails really well with the other thing I wanted to ask you about, because this is a topic. So in, in the last uh, chat I had with Seth, we briefly brought up AI and, mm-hmm. and we just kind of said, Hey, we should talk about this sometime soon on the pod. And then I think he said something like, let us know if you want us to have a whole episode about it. We got quite a bit of feedback from listeners saying, Oh my goodness, please talk about AI. This is the thing that we're all hearing about, thinking about, talking about. Um, and you recently wrote a piece, a, a brief piece about, I, I don't know if it was about AI, but it was, a you know, you were, you were reflecting on AI. Tell me more about what you're thinking regarding that and maybe even like wh- how it dovetails with some of what we've been talking about already. Sure. Yeah. And the piece that I wrote on my Substack depth perception was really about this, concern or anxiety that people have that AI is going to come in and it's going to replace human writers. Um, And I wanted to say, well, there's not actually anything you can ever do to replace the contact with a human mind, which is what writing is or what writing does or gives us or can give us. Um, And as far as artistic writing goes, that's true, but it's really interesting after I posted that, um, I got a text from my scientist sister who works <laughs> in DC and who said, Hey, actually, you know, if you're a civil servant, if you're working in this kind of very official um, role, um, AI is actually going to be a huge boon to folks with jobs like mine because it's going to replace a lot of the kind of rote formulaic writing that we have to produce for our work, um, that a large part of our work is producing this formulaic, repetitive, um, you know, formal kind of writing that's, you know, not very prepossessing. It is very dry, right? And, you know, mm-hmm. there there's only a very limited amount of human input that has to go into that, right? So it will free us up for the parts of our jobs that are creative and human and the things that only we could do. Right. Mm. Um, and, and I thought that was a really interesting point. Um, but I also didn't think it had validated anything that I said in the piece about, right. again, getting freed up for those things that only a human being could do. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so even if that's true for certain kinds of jobs, I think, you know, there, there's plenty to be concerned about too, and the kinds of economic effects that um, AI can have on a creative economy. Where um, I, I think Ted Joya talks about this on the Honest Broker Substack, where you know the market is sort of flooded with this um, low quality, you know, imitation of human art that's um, you know, going to maybe give art a bad name or you know keep yeah. keep people from seeing what good things are out there. I mean, even with, um, you know, a, a market that we've had for the last, I would say, you know, at least 20 years, which, you know, 
it is incredibly full of you know, lots of lots and lots and lots of ways you could spend your leisure time. Um, you know, it can be very confusing and frustrating to try to curate it or navigate it on your own if you don't know what you're looking for. Um, you know, it can feel if you look at the Amazon publishing lists, even like, oh, there's just this flood of things. Where would I even begin? Um, you know, it, there's it, there's already that situation, and I think it's legitimate to be concerned that AI would make it even worse and would result in even less respect for the economic um, rights and economic value sure. of, um, uh, of people who, I, I hesitate to use the word content creators because art is so much more than that. Um, yeah. You know, it's precisely what we, what we don't want to be is just churning out content for the sake of content, right? We always want what we're saying to have some deeper human relevance and some greater attentiveness to the world and to each other, you know, otherwise, what are we doing? What's the point of all of it? Right. Um, So the piece was called on human worth. Right. And the, the upshot of it was that, yeah, if I'm creating something, I want it to be adding literal value, even if it's dollar value is, you know, not Mm -hmm. assigned as high. Um, It's, it's necessarily the case that, if you're if you're writing for the human value of it, you're writing in a way that's deeply important to you and that you hope will be deeply important to others. Yeah. You know, it's funny you say what you said about what your sister said, because Seth, as a lawyer, has said the same thing, that AI will help him with a lot of that dry, repetitive writing, like contract work that I'm sure, I am sure I've never been there. So I am not going to pretend like, you know, oh, but just, you know, but don't you want the human touch to that kind of thing? I... I am not going to pretend like there's some reality to that statement. I also mm-hmm. wonder, and maybe this is a whole other episode for another time, you know, whether we need to still be people who have done that work. Uh, in some ways, you know, it reminds me of, I can't even remember when it was, maybe the 60s. I forget when there was that one person who said um, that by the 21st century, our, we'll have accomplished so much, but thanks to technology that our work days are going to be much shorter. Like we will only work 15 hours a week or whatever he said. Um, that was his prediction thanks to technology. And what have we done? We've done the opposite, right? We've just, we've burdened ourselves with more and more and more and, and our work days are sometimes untenable. I just wonder if we're going to end up taking the same naive posture with AI where we think, oh, letting AI do this dredge work will free us up for so much more creativity. I, I don't know. I just, you know, I hate to be kind of a, uh, the Debbie Downer in the room about AI. I just kind of wonder that, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a <laughs> totally reasonable, um, prediction. Actually, we, we don't seem to have fulfilled any of the predictions that were made in the <laughs> mid to late 20th century about what our our moment in the early 21st century would <laughs> look like, right? Yeah. Um, no flying cars yet, I noticed. Where's my flying car, right? right, right. <laughs> <laughs> no self-driving car even. <laughs> and I was, mm-hmm. I was assured we would have those by now. So, it, you know, yeah, predictions are a funny thing. You can't ever really be sure. And yeah, we, we kind of have seemed to have a genius, um, maybe a perverse genius as humans for um, overloading ourselves with precisely those things we least need. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, it, yeah, I wonder, I wonder to what extent is AI actually going to prove labor saving and is what, you know, to what extent are we just going to use it to, to like tie more burdens onto ourselves and each other? Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, in the meantime, you know, since we're talking about wanting to create work that's worth it, what are you working on right now? Do you have more writing on the way? Yeah, I do. So I've been uh, starting to try to get up early. So this is a huge routine shift for me, Tish, because I am not a morning (laughs) person by constitution. Um, (laughs) But I'm really excited about this new project. It's called Carillon. And uh, Carillon is a, um, you know, if, if you don't know the the term, it's the, you know, it's the bells in the tower, right? It's the the series of bells um, that all have their different voices, right? So the the story focuses on a family living in Texas, um, big Catholic sprawling family with lots of different characters in it um, and the ways that they, so far I'm focusing on the ways that they deal particularly with um with the parents aging and the children's ambitions. So mm-hmm. that's, um, at 14,000 words, which is not very long yet as novel drafts go, but I've got some things outlined um, and I'm excited about where it's going. It sounds really good. I Thanks. would be a target reader for that kind of work. So yeah. I'm excited you're yes. writing it. Um, Thank you. Well, as we tend to wind down all episodes, we like to end on a high note talking about the thing adding more beauty to our lives, since that's sort of been the running thread of this chat anyway. I'm curious if you have one thing right now, big or small, adding a little bit of beauty to your life. What is it right now? Uh, yeah. So I'm rereading George Eliot's Middle March. And that is just that's funny. such a beautifully proportioned and lovely book. Um, if you're mm. a fan of form and literature of any kind, novel, short story, poem, be it what it may. Um, yeah, it, Middlemarch is, you know, it gets a bad rap. It's really long um, and it starts slow, but once it builds and all the pieces start to come together, you see just this, this form emerging out of like almost like driving up to this huge, beautiful country house in the mist and watching it sort of be revealed out of the mist. So um, that's the experience of reading Middlemarch for me. Um, Yeah. So I recommend it. It's a challenge, but it's worth it. And yeah, like 10 minutes a night, you won't be disappointed. Yeah. That's a great reread. Uh, I kind of yeah. gasped when you said that because that has been on my mind since the oh, school yeah. year started. You know, here we are in early fall. That Middlemarch should be a book I pick up again. Um, that that's just, yeah. I, you know, whenever you start thinking of something, you start seeing it here and there. You're like the third or fourth person yeah. that I've heard talk about Middlemarch. So um, I think that may be a sign from God that I need to dust that off. It's been many a moon since yeah. I have read George Eliot. So great suggestion. I like that. I love that. I love that synchronicity. It's chasing you. I do too. Yeah. I do too. Um, so I guess the thing that's adding more beauty in my life is a pot, uh, playlist I recently found. My uh, kids do school at home three days a week. And mm-hmm. I like to play music for us to concentrate as we all do our work together. I write alongside them as they do their work. And I found this one made by uh, who even knows it was some internet Spotify, but they did a good job. It's just called Reading Adventure public playlist, but it is scores and soundtracks for daring quests, epic journeys, and the greatest reading adventures is what it's called. And I find it to be a really good playlist to have on the background whilst reading or getting work done because it's instrumental. So, you know, no words to distract us, but it also is not just this dull lo-fi, which I think has its time and place. But to me, it has that feeling of Bilbo saying, I'm going on an adventure and mm. sometimes we need that when we are reading yeah. or writing or doing the dishes so that it feels like we're doing a thing, right? So yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah, I'll put that in the show notes it. as well. It's just this little simple playlist that someone else made for me and I am happy about it. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, 
All right. Well, it is time for us to start wrapping this up. You can find all our episodes at a drinkwithafriend.com. You can find me and all my stuff at tishoxenwriter.com. Katie, where's the best place for people to find you and your work? The best place would be just to go to depth perception. It's katiecarl.substack.com. That's really easy to remember. Yeah, perfect. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well as a link to your new book and anything else we find, including dappled things. Uh, so head to the show notes of this episode for everything we've talked about in this little chat. Uh, one quick thing before I head on out, I wanted to mention to anyone interested in the Texas area or even those willing to drive to Texas that October 5th, I will be at Fabled Bookstore in Waco. Have you ever been there, Katie? It's a I delightful little bookshop. sounds fantastic. Very okay. cool. All right, you should, you should put it on your field trip list. Yeah, awesome. so it is one of my favorite local indie bookshops. So if you are in the area, I will be there October 5th, and we will be talking about both the practice of a daily examine, but also the purpose of gratitude in our daily lives, all that good stuff, along with writing, reading, whatever it is you want to talk about. I will sign books or I will uh, chat with you over a drink, whatever it is you want. It should be lots of fun. It's free. Kids are more than welcome. Uh, so I'll put a link in the show notes. If you would like to say hi to me, I would find that most delightful. Kevin McLeod did the music of this episode. Kyle Oxenreiter did the editing. Katie and I did the talking. And we will be back here with you again soon. In the meantime, thank you for being here. And thank you, Katie, for joining me. It was delightful. Thanks so much, Tish. What a joy. 